All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today's a Tuesday episode, but a little different. So with us, as usual, is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. But also with us is our colleague and friend, Chris Coffey. Chris is the CEO of Tusk Strategies. And once in a while, as you guys know, Chris comes on and we just kind of do a full recap of New York politics and felt like we were due for one and it'd be fun. So, Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, uh, and Happy New Year. Uh, this will air the day after Yom Kippur. So let me ask you a, a Yom Kippur-related question. So the, the work that we do is by definition oppositional, right? People hire us to achieve a regulatory or legislative or media objective uh, because it is so, uh, over the interest of someone else who has the opposite goal, right? And by definition, the work that we do more than half the time requires conflict. There's literally no way to do it without it. Um, and sometimes that conflict is, you know, rough in the sense of not not physically rough, but, you know, we will do all the research we can on an opponent and whatever we find, however damning it is, we will usually put it out there um, in the media if we think it helps our cause. When you atone, do you regret that or do you just see that as like, hey, this is democracy. We provide, you know, the people who work with us the outlet um, to be able to sort of make their case, and we have to engage in the tactics of the way politics works. You know, I've, I've never thought about it. I mean, I, I think that I don't, I, don't, I, I, don't, I compartmentalize things in a way that you may not. Um, and so I do atone. I think about my family, my friends, and I might think about work, but when I'm thinking about work, it's colleagues at work and whether I, you know, whether there's things I need to atone for or things I should do better or things that help me. I, I don't know that no, I- I'm, I'm exactly the same way, which is I, I don't feel bad at all. And by the way, when there are potential clients that you and I don't feel good about taking, we don't take them. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever felt bad about something that I've done to an adversary. I mean, if you're blowing up a racist's emails, like I have zero shits about that. Yeah. So I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm trying. It's been 12 years, so maybe there's someone, but no one jumps. To mind. No, I agree. On the flip side, you know, there are plenty of people in New York politics who don't actually know you or me, who would say they have a very negative view of either of us, solely based on you know campaigns we've run and things we've done publicly. And so while on one hand, I, I neither feel bad about nor would change the way that we operate either, um, I do think it shapes some level of opinion. You yeah. know, it's just a price you have to pay, I think. I just had breakfast with a guy who ran the progressive super PAC for progressives in the mayor's race in 2021, and he had reached out. Um, well, when, he, when they need something, it's different. Well, no, he reached out and he was like, I just thought I would meet you and da-da-da-da-da, and I've heard, you know, and, he, and at the end he said, you know, it's interesting. Um, you're not at all what I thought you'd be like. I thought you would be, I don't know what he thought I'd be like. I, I don't know whether to take it as a compliment or not, but. Um, he thought you'd be like super, what, like aggressive. Like a jerk. And, yeah. yeah. I'm not really sure. Um, I yeah. think. But, but look, that, that just gets into this general climate that we live in today where I think a lot of people are so desperate to find some kind of identity that they will buy into this notion of sort of good and evil, which is true on the left and the right. That like, you know, if, if you are fully morally pure and subscribe to all the things that someone else tells you that you're supposed to believe, you're good. And if you deviate that from any way, you are bad. Um, and it's just a really kind of pathetic, lazy way of thinking that I think is really destroying our politics. Yeah, there's more nuance in life. Life is nuanced. Be nuanced. All right. So first topic. Um, so last week, Tusk Philanthropies 
it, uh, released a poll that we commissioned on the migrant crisis. And the specific question that I had and wanted to kind of get some, some data on is work permits for the migrants, right? And yes, I think we would all prefer the migrants not come here in the first place. And I think you and I would agree that there should not be a right to shelter because that's just an obligation the city just cannot meet or handle. It's not fair. But once they're here, um, you have two choices. You can pay to house and feed them, which is literally bankrupting the city budget. Or you can say, look, there are lots of job openings in healthcare, in hospitality that don't require you to necessarily speak English or whatever else. Um, why don't we just let them work, you know, change the rules to make that happen. And then instead of giving them money to live on, let them pay taxes and put more money back into the city budget and economy. Um, so the poll showed, not surprisingly, that voters strongly agree with that. You know, roughly about you know seventy five percent of voters supported that, about twenty percent opposed it. And where we polled was um, not New York City, but we polled the four four congressional di districts on Long Island and four upstate that are swing seats because I think that this will be a major issue uh, if it's still ongoing in the House uh, races next year. And in some ways, the data was more useful to show. Adams and Hochul and Schumer and Jeffries, both of the risks that they are facing if they don't deal with this appropriately, um, and also the uh, upside politically in that people, there's cover to do so. And, you know, two days, three days later, uh, the White House grants the Venezuelans work permit. So clearly we must have done it, right? It had yeah, to be us. It had to be us. It couldn't have been anyone else. Yeah. It's amazing how much of an issue this has become uh, and how paralyzed the government's city state and federal have have been by this and it's it's a challenge and i don't i don't necessarily blame them in some ways because i'm not really sure what the answer is as soon as you start housing folks then you're the city is saying well then there are responsibility and the state's off the hook um and you've taken away incentive for the federal government to pick up the tab on the other hand if you don't house them i'm not sure what you do um, I don't know where, I, you know, I'm the chair of the board of Women in Need, which is a big homeless organization. We have a thousand migrant folks in our facilities right now, and, and it's growing every day. Um, and I don't know, it's a comp, these folks aren't like intending to come here. They're being put on a bus by some horrible governor of some terrible place. And they show up with no clothes and no money and no nothing. And like, what do you do with them? So I think we could have done a better job of, of populating them in other places. Like the Buffalo has 8,000 folks. We have 150,000. There's no other cities that have 5,000. So we could share the burden in New York at least. Um, but, um, but certainly letting folks work is a no-brainer, and it's a politically smart issue as well as the, the right issue. I think the Biden folks are probably worried— that opens the floodgates in an election year. Well, or maybe not. the floodgates already seem clearly open. I think what they worry is the argument, of course, and it was in the New York Post today, is, well, the reason you don't want to give work permits is it will just encourage more and more people to come here. And clearly, because Team Biden is not stupid at all, they've tested this argument in swing states, and clearly they think it really hurts them. And look, this is one of the challenges of the Electoral College, which is it doesn't really matter how bad this issue gets. If you're Biden, you're not going to lose New York's electoral college votes in, in the 24 election. Hakeem may lose seats. Um, it could even maybe cost Hochul her reelection at some point if, if it keeps going that long. Um, but for Biden, there's sort of zero risk. So, so politically, the right move is to put all of your eggs in the swing state baskets. Um, so how does—I mean, you're sort of a lifelong New York political expert and advocate for New York— 
given the electoral college and given that you basically can take us for granted, how does New York assert itself better so it gets treated more fairly by the federal government? Well, if you wanted to, you could stop donating, right? New York has donors, the most donors of any state. Um, and you could stop donating to, to politicians at the state and federal level. Um, and you could do a better job of, of advocating. It's uh, the, the mayor and the governor have not been aligned. And so forget, forget Hakeem, forget Chuck. Like if the mayor and the governor aren't aligned on it, then it's very easy to say, well, you're not even aligned. Like, what do we have to do? Um, and so I think there needs to be more alignment and strategy, and it's not clear that there's a ton of strategy. Do, do you think there is a politically organized business community in New York that can speak with one voice for New York's kind of interests, or do you think that either it is so disorganized or there are so many disparate interests that it's impossible to organize? It's just hard. I mean, it's 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 hard because they all have interests, they all have they give money to folks. So, you know, when it comes to really coming out aggressively against politician X, they're going to have folks on their board that don't want to do that. And those are the folks that make up X percentage of the board. And I think it handicaps some of these business groups from being as tough as they could be. Frankly, the progressives don't have that. I mean, progressives are much tougher on folks than uh, than the kind of moderate Democratic side is in fights like this. Yeah. Not to mention, I, I, well, in the Republican, let me look at the whole shutdown issue in the House for two, right? Too, right? The, the far right isn't handicapped by any version of reality whatsoever, right? And as a result, anything moderate is totally dead. Right. On the flip side, like those are the grownups in the room tend to be the ones on the moderate side, either on the right or the left. So it's hard to, and, and less so, it's, e it's easy when you don't have to like actually govern and I'm not sure what the solution to that is. Yeah, and there was a great quote in, in a column today from a anonymous Republican House member that said, you know, some of these people would vote against the Bible because there's not enough Jesus in it, right? Um, and again, that's why mobile voting either would do one of two things in this case. It would either force everyone to the center simply because they want to get reelected, or for the true nuts, it would sweep them out of office. Um, another poll came out last week, the Siena poll, and talked about just the basic message was everything's bad, right? Quality of life in New York is getting worse, 57 worse, 14% say better, Biden's not fit to serve, Trump's not fit to serve, you know, just sort of negative after negative. My question to you is, are things really bad or just given the political media climate we live in, is this just normal and we should never expect a poll to have anything other than bad news. I don't think that's the case. I think we're in a little bit of a leadership void right now. I think that um, people at the federal level would like to see younger folks and more a generational shift. They're not seeing that. Um, and then at the governor and the city level, there's been a little bit of a paralysis on some big, big issues. Um, and as long as quality of life stuff is getting worse and crime is not getting better, uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard for folks to feel favorably about their local elected officials. Uh, and nor are they, I mean, the other thing is, uh, you know, Hochul had a big housing initiative that she pushed really hard that went down in defeat. There's not a lot of proactive stuff that is coming out at either this. Now, the, yeah. mayor, the mayor wrote something out yesterday. Which yeah, is we'll, we'll get to that. But right, it would be hard to say if even for people involved in politics, what does Kathy Hochul believe in? I just I think people say, oh, she's kind of centrist, moderate. But like I couldn't 
tell you more than that, could you? Yeah, I mean, she's done a lot on abortion and well, okay, things, but but on abortion, but... let's be honest here. Um, when we passed the Shield Law to allow doctors in New York to feel more comfortable prescribing abortion medication to women in red states, her office, you know, they got on board and they had a big signing ceremony, but they did nothing to move the bill until we got it all the way over the finish line. So, like, they're not really big on abortion because when it actually came to doing some government work on it, they did nothing. Yeah, I. I mean, I wouldn't give Kathy Hochul all the blame for this. The, le- the legislature, more so than at any time in my lifetime, the legislature is running the show in New York and has boxed in. I mean, these fights that they got into with the governor over the last year and a half have been, you know, really bad fights. Uh, it's, and these are all Democrats. So the fight that the fighting is not partisan. It's not policy. It's you know, how how they view each other. But it wasn't the, I would argue, the big tactical mistake, and, and I know you were involved in the effort to try to confirm Hattulisal as the chief judge of New York, when he was uh, rejected by the legislature in sort of an unprecedented and historic way that usually that deference is just given to whoever the governor is, and they didn't really hit back hard, right? What they, I would argue, should have done was in that moment say, okay, we're at war. Every patronage hire any of you have ever submitted, everyone's fired. Every grant you have pending, they're all fucking canceled. And gone after them every way you can because otherwise the message that gets sent is you can fuck with us and it's cost-free. And once that happens and that sets in, changing it is incredibly hard. Yeah, I mean the governor has made it her—I think they think that their shtick is that they're not Andrew Cuomo. Right. We're we're different. We're a better it, government. We're an opener government. He, he was I mean, personal odiousness aside was actually a pretty effective governor. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm not. Um, but but I think that what, what you're the tactics that you're suggesting are Cuomonian. And I think they view anything Cuomonian as bad. And I think if you look at any mayor, governor and look at the predecessor to next person relationship, it is very, very frequent. Anything de Blasio is bad with Eric Adams. Anything Bloomberg, bad with de Blasio. Anything Dinkins, bad with Giuliani. You know, you can go on. And the same is true on governors. Anything Spitzer, bad for Cuomo. Um, Patterson, bad, you know, and now you've got Hochul, um, bad. And so anything that seems to be Cuomonian doesn't get done. Uh, and I would, it wasn't just, I mean, the way that they rolled him out, they did it via press release. They didn't go out and say, hey, here's 1199 and BJ, and we're going to meet with all the Senate majority leader. We're going to introduce this guy. They didn't do any of that. Um, I think that he was even on a list of folks that they said, we're not going to confirm this guy. And they put him out anyway. And they said, guess what? We're not going to confirm him. And then yeah. she went out and said, she did something like she con- she gave them the pay raise that they wanted, but she talked about pay raise, so she made it an issue. So A, they were furious that she talked about pay raise, but she didn't even take it away from them. So it's or, like- Or they, get anything in return yeah, for like, it. So they were furious that she had talked about pay raise, so they're angry. They get their pay raise. She loses her leverage. She doesn't. They're not even happy with her because- that she had talked about it, made it an issue. Um, and some of this is the legislature, right? Like it's not all the governor, but the legislature sees someone who's um, who they think they can roll. And if she doesn't figure out how to roll them back, they're going to keep rolling. Yeah. And, and, and beyond that, I mean, I just I think part of the challenge we have right now is we have a mayor and a governor that just don't know how to proactively lead. Right. So migrant crisis, like we should have had a New York work permit months ago rather than just sitting around whining and complaining about Biden. And like the illegal weed shops is another one, right? There are thousands and thousands uh, of stores selling weed illegally. And the governor and the mayor both shrug their shoulders and say like, oh, they make up some excuse why they can't do anything about it. And they may be sort of technically right on the merits, 
But the reality is leadership in the executive branch is just stepping up and solving problems regardless of the political consequences. And neither of these seem to even understand that. Yes. Yes, you agree. Well, I, you know, it's, I think they, they would argue they've done more on illegal weed shops than you would. But at the fact of the matter is there's Hold two on. We're, we're sitting on Orchard between Houston and Stanton, and there are four on this block. Yep. So, so you tell me what they've accomplished. Yep. All right. Uh, you mentioned that you are the chair of Women and Children in Need. It's a wonderful organization. It is run by Chris Quinn, who is a friend of ours, former speaker of the city council, ran for mayor in 2013, was the front runner, and lost pretty badly. Um, and there was a nice Times profile of her the other day that kind of sort of floated the notion of like maybe she's going to make a political comeback. Um, I think Chris would actually be you know a, a really good option for the city, but it seems to me that politically, if Adams were to be vulnerable in a primary, it's not from the left, right? It's from someone like Andrew Cuomo on the right saying the city is out of control. Crime is out of control. Homelessness is out of control. There's mentally ill people off the street. Fentanyl is out of control. There's scaffolding everywhere. Shoplifting is out of control. Chris, you know, her, I just don't see how defending the homeless, as noble as it is, is possibly a winning strategy. So... Uh, there's a there's a few things there. I actually don't think that you can beat the mayor on the right. There's just not enough votes in a Democratic primary. There's no votes there. So he's going to you, you need the, the only votes that are. Well, there. you're assuming he keeps all black votes. And what? But if, if it becomes a public safety question, are you sure you keep all black votes and Latino votes, by the way? Latino men have become Republicans. I'm, I'm right, which means they can't. Those people can't vote. Oh, okay, so, but you know what I mean. There, yeah, there's so, a shift. There's, th- those communities are much more centrist than the progressives would have you believe. There's a big, big number of progressives in the Democratic Party that are voting in the primary, and I don't know how you can win without those people. Either you need like my enemy, my enemy, where progressives are teaming up with like a centrist Garcia, Quinn type, and I don't think Chris is running, so I don't want to. But I, but I don't, and I also don't know that Chris. I don't know that progressives even view Chris as to the left of Eric Adams. Like I don't. No, it's that, a, that, it's a that's con- the irony. Her, her. If you were to hit her, you would say she is a huge, you know, problem in, in terms of our homelessness crisis, and that she's just sort of perpetuating a broken system. And yet, in 2013, she suffered from being considered too centrist. Yeah. I, anyway, I don't. Chris isn't. She has said she's not running. She said she's not going to run against Eric Adams. She said that on TV the other day. I think that's true. Um, I do think, and I think it's very, very hard to see how the mayor can lose. Um, if there's some, the, the two ways that stand out would be if there's some legal issue, yep. um, that certainly I don't know anything about, uh, which is always true of any mayor. Yeah. Um, and two, yeah. if there, if if crime spikes, if you have crime, if people really feel like crime is out of control, and I'm not sure that they do, it's a little bit of a complicated picture now. Murders are down. Yep. Uh, most other things are are, are, are even or up. Um, and so it's complicated. It, the index is up like six, seven percent. So, but but you need a person to run against him, and Great. I don't know. To me, like if Catherine Garcia got in the race, could she pull folks from the right and get progressives to vote for her? Absolutely, maybe. I just don't know. Yeah. I don't know that many people that do that. I, Andrew Cuomo does not do that. Andrew Cuomo would assure that progressives vote for Eric Adams, I think, or vote for some, or vote for. Or there's a third candidate and the progressives are with that person, like where they stay home or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. So I'm not totally sure I agree with that, but I would say this. on the Because I, I, when I tried to get someone to run against de Blasio in 2017, where my strategy was wrong was I was sort of assuming that 
all of the criminal investigations into de Blasio would actually matter to voters and that, sure, if he got indicted, great, but even if, like, there was just a lot of smoke, that would be meaningful. And I think what I've since learned, and obviously the Trump stuff is, a, unless someone is actually convicted of a crime, it doesn't fucking matter yeah, Convicting all. Eric Ulrich of, like, taking an apartment for under market rate is not going to get folks to... No, it'd have to be convicting Eric Adams, Adams himself, yeah. of which there's no reason to yeah. think that will happen whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I and, I, and, I, and Andrew Cuomo, just to... Andrew Cuomo wants to run for governor. Andrew Cuomo's not running for mayor. Andrew Cuomo, if, if Andrew Cuomo comes back, he's going to run in 2026 against Kathy Hochul. Zit. Or against, you know, or Kathy doesn't run or she's, you know, whatever. But that to me is the only path that Andrew Cuomo would, would want to take. Um, and I don't see him running for mayor. The, the pool of people that I think would run for mayor, it's a fairly small pool. It's like Scott Stringer, maybe Jessica Ramos, uh, Garcia would be a, a, a candidate. I just don't think she's going to uh, run. Uh, like you said, unless crime is out of control or yeah. Adams himself has been criminally indicted, no one's going to run. Right, and there's no reason to think he would be. And yeah. so in all likelihood, I mean, we went through this in 17. Yeah, yeah. He, de Blasio is worse he, than... He, if you were to put money on FanDuel or whatever right now, if you could, on like yeah, mayor's yeah. 2025 20, race, you should bet on Adams. I would bet on Adams in a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so speaking of Adams, you know, we've criticized him just now for sort of his lack of action or, or being sort of proactive on a, a work permit and on the legal weed shops. One thing that seems very positive is they put out a housing plan yesterday um, that would allow for 100,000 new homes to be constructed and really kind of open up zoning to, to make affordable housing more possible. Uh, what do you think of it? I thought it was a great. I mean, that's what they need to be doing. They need to be rolling out big, positive, proactive policy. Uh, and this is an example of that. Uh, it's got it's going to get good attention. It's going to show that they had a big um, a big win. I think the devil's in the detail, like another like, you know, if they're going to grant people exceptions in communities that go to them and say, no, 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 we don't want this, then that's how that hundred thousand becomes you know, 30,000. But um, as long as they don't do that and can hold the line in places where their folks will not want that housing, then I think they're fine. And it's a great announcement for them. Yeah. And I think it's also an example of in this administration, there's just sort of an unevenness of talent, right? So Dan Gorodnik, who's the chairman of the City Planning Commission, really talented guy. And I wasn't surprised at all that he and his team put out a really smart, thoughtful plan. I talked to him about it this morning. Um, we've seen that at Sanitation, for example, with, with Jesse Tisch. But then we've also seen a lot of agencies that seem to be a mess. Um, and this kind of gets back to the the underlying precept of that I think you and I subscribe to at city government, which is it's an operational job, and you just need the most talented people you can get in every single role. And when you replace talent with political patronage because someone endorsed you in a primary— um, then all of a sudden the city just doesn't function as well. Do, do you think the success of the, at least the, the thoughtfulness of the housing plan kind of proves that or, or it in any way says to Adams, like maybe I need more people like Gorodnik? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think that, that to me, there's different ways to govern. There's the de Blasio and Cuomo way, which is we, we appoint hacks at these agencies and we tell the hacks what to do. So we send the plan to the hack and we ask the hack to implement the plan. And then there's the Bloomberg way, which is we put really smart people in there and we wait for them to come tell us 
hey, we need to do this new park. We need to do 311. We need to do smoking ban. We need to do whatever. We don't know. We're not experts on on the things they're experts on. We will take their opinion and we'll go out and implement their opinion. And those are two very, very different ways to run a government. Cuomo was somewhat successful in telling people what to do, but he wasn't he wasn't getting a ton of feedback from folks that worked for him in different places. And he was telling, he was well, calling them and telling them what to do. Yeah. And, and look, there are some operational responsibilities of the state, like highway safety or corrections, but it's mainly social services, which get very little actual attention. City is a much different beast. Well, I don't, I took the Amtrak yesterday into Moynihan Station and I flew into LaGuardia a couple of weeks ago. And man, those places look great now. Yep. And do. those are, you know, those are places that, you know, they're, they're doing big projects. And, you know, I'm the chair of Brooklyn Bridge Park. Brooklyn Bridge Park wouldn't be there without Mike Bloomberg and without the state government. So there's all these things that the city and the state can do, but you have to say, okay, we're going to appoint really good people. We're going to, we're going to let them recommend things. And then we're going to go do them, even if it means not being popular in that one minute. Um, de Blasio didn't do, de Blasio only cared about housing uh, and pre-K. And so if it was housing and pre-K, he had smart people and he would take their recommendations and do it. Um, if it was anything else, he just didn't care. So it didn't get any attention. It didn't get any marital focus. Adams seems to be a little bit of a combo of those because he, you know, in some agencies, he lets people recommend things and they go implement like we saw yesterday and in others, that's just not the case. Um, and so, you know, maybe as time goes by, he'll appoint smarter people or, or people that want to go out and ex expert people, I should say, instead of um, sort of lifelong whatever people. Um, so this morning, uh, Bob Menendez, U.S. Senator from New Jersey, was indicted. I'm shocked. Again, right? Shocked, I say. Um, and so, look, I, I, he's up for re-election next year. The consensus that I can tell from Jersey politics is certainly he's not going to be in a position to run because the way that the ballot lines are, are given out in New Jersey is effectively a handful of county party bosses just decide who gets Democratic line and who doesn't. Um, but the question I was getting from people this morning is, well, is he going to resign, which would give Murphy the chance to appoint someone, and partly because my brother-in-law, Josh Gottheimer, is um, you know, someone who theoretically could be in that mix, although Josh's interest, I think, lies more in, in being governor and senator. Um, do you see a world where Menendez resigns? Because I, I think the guy, like, he has no shame at all. He's not going to resign. Right. He's going to, they're going to be, they're going to drag him out of the office. I, I think he's going to run again. He's going to run. He's not, he's not leaving. He's been indicted. How many times has he been indicted? A couple. Yeah. When has he left yet? No. And the, and the story about the wife or the girlfriend and the money. I don't even know what this indictment is. The last one was like bundling money to the wife or the girlfriend. Right. I mean, he they may not be able to run because he might get convicted. If he's in then. jail, he'll, yes. he'll probably not be a senator. <laughs> right. But short of that, I feel like what are they going to be, you know, like you think he's going to not the, the, the leverage that he has via his, uh, you know, for his indictment is being a senator. So once you resign, you've lost that leverage. Maybe he'll agree not to run or resign as part of some sort of plea deal. But this is he's months away from that, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, while it seems like they have him dead to rights, I'm sure it seemed that way last time. Also, usually they don't you don't indict a you know U.S. senator without like a rock solid case, and they didn't win. Joe Bercoco was giving bo you know boxes of ZD for cash, and his thing got vacated because you know he wasn't in the government at the time. I mean, I just you just know you know the the burden of proof is higher than it should be. Um, so the New York Post is you and I both believe has a huge influence on kind of local politics. Um, in many ways more than, say, the Times, because um, in a tabloid way, it can really then shape 
TV coverage. Um, it gets a lot of play in places like Long Island, which then sort of have a big impact on like congressional races and things like that. Uh, Rupert Murdoch yesterday announced his retirement. It's on Lachlan's taking over. One, do you expect any change in the post? And two, given that the post, as I understand, is an unprofitable business and it's just sort of been a passion project for Rupert all these years, um, does Lachlan just keep funding it the same way? Or does he kind of say, like, you know, I, I got to deliver strong quarterly earnings and this is a way to reduce, to reduce my losses? Yeah, I just don't. I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert in Rupert land. I would be very surprised if while Rupert is chairman emeritus and alive, if they mess with the post too much. Um, and I've gotten to know uh, the editor-in-chief fairly well. He moved here with his family from London. Like, I just don't see a ton of changes there. That doesn't mean that in the long term there won't be changes. Right. And then do, do you see, let's say the post came up for sale, right? Because they wouldn't close it. They would try to sell it and get whatever they could for it if, if that's what they wanted to do. Who, who's the buyer for something like that? Oh, it's an eccentric, sorry, eccentric. It's a it's a billionaire type who uh, wants to have more influence in the city. Could be a rising billionaire that wants to um, be a major player in New York City, New York State, and Republican and or Republican politics around the country. Yeah. Um, Airbnb. So there's been this sort of historic battle between, it, they say the hotels and Airbnb, but it's really the hotel trade union. Uh, which is sort of the actual political powerhouse in that area, and Airbnb. And it looks like Airbnb has now completely lost. They had to scrub something like 59,000 listings from their site this week. What's the law? Why did Airbnb lose? And if they called you and said, Chris, what should we do? What would you tell them? Oh, boy. Um, well, the law goes back to a Carlina Rivera, uh, who's a city councilwoman in this district, I think, uh, law that passed in 2018, 2019, uh, in New York City that uh, banned Airbnb, basically, uh, in New York-ish. Um, um, and I, the, the history of it is, is, is super complicated, but um, I think Airbnb thought that that wouldn't happen, that if they hired the best, most connected lobbyists, that they would be safe. And it is a fundamental misunderstanding of how government works, not that lobbyists aren't important, not that you don't need a good lobbyist, but um, if the overwhelming popular opinion is against something, having a lobbyist who knows the guy or the person uh, is rarely enough to thwart something. In this case, the Hotel Trades Union, uh, which uh, has been the biggest political force union in the state in terms of donating, in terms of turning out bodies for election, in terms of um, just sheer force uh, has taken Airbnb as their number one existential threat. They teamed up with the Hotel Association, which represents uh, mostly unionized, but also some non-unionized hotels. And they spent a fortune uh, both on elected officials, but also on paid media, on messaging, on all sorts of things, and really went after Airbnb. By the way, it didn't take much. If you went to a community board meeting not that I'm going to a lot of community board meetings, but if you went to a, a, a meeting in 2016 or 2017 in Manhattan or in Brooklyn, and you said, what's the number one issue? They would say Airbnb. Now today they'll probably say crime and quality of life, but when, the, when things are going pretty well, then you start focusing on things that are just annoying. And Airbnb was very, very, very annoying. 
And they had, you know, Hotel Trades Union had super allies in the city council, in the mayor, at de Blasio, at the state level with Cuomo and the speaker of the assembly and the majority leader. And there was not, you know, Airbnb did did not do a great job of fighting off these things or even telling a good story. Um, and for years, they just spent too long thinking, we'll just like hire the right lobbyist and that'll be that. Uh, and they, I mean, they did some other stuff. They spent community money. They donated to community groups. I'm sure they would say they did more than I'm saying they did. Um, the challenge they have that makes them different than Uber or whatever is that the people that care the most about Airbnb are tourists. They're not here. There's not New Yorkers that are like, save Airbnb. There might be some um, some folks that rent out their apartments and they're, you know that's not nothing. And so I think they've tried to tap into those stories. Yeah, except for those people, if you're asking them to come out for you, it's because the legality of what they're doing is in question, right? So I think it's it's like for Uber, we just had people send a text to council member so-and-so saying you want this thing to, to stay, no cost, no easy to do. If it's like, you know, advocate for Airbnb and maybe raise your hand and therefore get in trouble because you're renting illegally, like that's a hard ask. Right, and not just renting illegally, they're worried about their co-op board, their condo, like there's all sorts of rules that don't allow it and folks were doing it anyway. Airbnb, I believe is still legal in single family homes, but if you're in an apartment, building, condo, co-op, like it's not, uh, and that's the vast majority of New York City apartments. And I'm sure you can still find illegal ones, but it gets harder and harder. So what do they do from here, if anything? pray. No, I mean, they have to do a better, they have to create a political apparatus and try to get folks on their side. It's very, very hard. They need to figure out how to get some of those stories uh, of folks who are losing revenue by not being able to rent out their places and get those stories out. They need to do a better job of showing kind of connections from the hotel trades union to electeds. I mean, there's a, there are a bunch of things they can do it's very late in the process at this point. I mean, it's like once this, the, the, the time for this was 2018, 2017. All right, I'm gonna close by, I'm gonna make a statement to you, and this is a national political, not, not local, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Uh, the greatest political tragedy of, of our time was not the election of Donald Trump, uh, but the decision in Bush v. Gore. Disagree? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, why do you think that? So here, here's why. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this this morning. Yep. Two things. One, we don't have the Iraq war uh, under Al Gore. So let's assume 9-11 still happens. I'm sure it would have. That wouldn't have changed it at all. But given that there was zero evidence that Iraq was behind it and that the Bush administration knew that and lied about it, and given all the economic incentive that Cheney and others there had to sort of enrich Halliburton to the tune of tens of billions of dollars because it went back into their pockets, I just don't think the political incentives are there for Gore to pursue the Iraq war. So one, there's, you know, a trillion plus dollars not spent. Two, you know, maybe you don't care that much about non-American lives, but the estimates are anywhere from half a million to a million people died, including, by the way, you know, thousands of Americans too. Um, and I think that some of the ultimate sort of resentment that produced Trump um, was the fact that, you know, you have this polarized society where people who feel like they're not getting ahead economically are asked to potentially sacrifice their lives um, for their country. And so I think both the lives, the cost, and sort of the longer term political impact is meaningful. And the second to me, and even more meaningful maybe, is climate, right? And this is the only politician who truly really started talking about this thing a long time ago. And even if he couldn't have passed things like a carbon tax through 
Congress, and I don't really remember what the makeup of House and Senate was back then, so I don't know if, if that was feasible or not. Probably not. But as we've seen with Obama and Biden, um, there's the ability for the administration through executive orders, through the rulemaking process, to do a tremendous amount around emissions and fossil fuels. Um, and arguably, if back in 2000 we started doing these things, then the, we wouldn't be anywhere near the same level of global warming we're at today because we would have been able to curb it two decades ago and the effect would have compounded and compounded. Instead, you know, we're in this sort of situation that is, that is catastrophic. So I just think both for the impact on the planet and the impact of the war, Iraq war itself, I think both those things are wildly different. And as a result, when you act as odious as Trump is, those two things ultimately are much more important. Yeah, it was a Republican House under Denny Hastert, and it was a Democratic Senate briefly after Jim Jeffords uh, announced that he was. Oh yeah, that's right. It. I was there at the time, and Tom Daschle I sh- took I should, over. I should remember, but that. only only for like a year and a half, and then the Senate went back to Republican in '04. So I, I mean, I liked. I mean, George Bush was a, you know, Iraq was you. In order for that to be true, you have to make the case that the Iraq War is the cause of Trump, because I don't think the rest of uh, you know, Iraq, as horrible as it was, it's harder for me to see the correlation that you just made between Iraq and Trump. Um, and and, and the, the million lives and trillion dollars doesn't matter to you? Uh, it doesn't matter. Tr- Trump is an existential threat to the United States. Uh, and and I don't think that the Iraq war or George W. Bush was. I watched somehow on 9-11, the 22nd anniversary, I watched uh, a video of George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium that, yeah. two weeks after 9-11. You just couldn't, Democrat, Republican, whatever. You, there's no politician today that would go out and throw out the first pitch and get people in Iowa and Nebraska to cheer for the New York Yankees and for and for the president. And yeah. just he, he had a 91% approval rating at that point. And it's funny, I remember I was at the, the Corner Bistro, so a bar in the West Village, one of the most democratic precincts in America. And he got at the bar from TV a standing ovation. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, you know, I, you know, George W. Bush made a lot of catastrophic, you know, horrible mistakes. Um, I actually think it goes back to sort of Clinton, Monica, and the polarization that started around that time from folks that were just fervently like anti-Clinton and they lied and they made some mistakes. And like to me, it's not Bill Clinton's fault, but that era kind of led to the irrationality behind Barack Obama, the anger that like the anger of people against Obama, uh, who was whether you thought of as a president, like didn't break the law, didn't, you know, like whether he's from Hawaii, it's like crazy. And that sort of craziness to me leads to Donald Trump. So then you could take it back one more step then. So the Tea Party is sort of what preceded that and, yep. and, and the predicate for it. And I would argue what made the Tea Party successful is Facebook um, and the internet. And not just in various forms, whether it was even back pre-Facebook messaging boards and whatever it is. But, you know, up until then, grassroots really meant Democrats having unions um, to get out the vote, and then all of a sudden, um, the internet came along, and the right was able to find all of these people who normally kind of were too hard to organize because they were so disparate, and bring them together, and that produced uh, a totally different culture in Republican politics. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It's you know, can you see Donald Trump getting elected president without the internet? No. If you didn't have the internet, would he be elected? And the answer is probably not. So. Um, it's just hard because it's not Barack Obama's fault, uh, but yet well, that, that here's time, where it is Barack Obama's fault. 
um, he chose not to spend political capital on making reforms to the internet that might have made it less toxic, which might have prevented Trump. Keep on, Trump just barely won, right? So if you had repealed Section 230 and a lot of the misinformation that Facebook and others got away with, um, if that was impossible, um, that might have prevented it. So o Obama's failure to foresee or regulate social media, especially when the Europeans did see it and did take action on it, so it wasn't like it was just sort of like a surprise, um, I would say it was a really big failure on his part. Yeah. I mean, I would also, I mean, I wouldn't let Hillary Clinton off the hook. You know, it's like, <laughs> Wait, what does she and, do? And well, I, I, you know, it's not, I actually don't blame Hillary. I blame Democratic voters and senior folks in, in, in Democratic politics at that time. Everybody knew that she wasn't popular. Everybody knew that there was a whole segment of the population, 45%, 48%, 51%, whatever the number is, that absolutely not, no matter what, would never vote for her. She's the one person in the country in 2016 that like 48% of people would never, ever, ever, ever vote for, which means you need to capture every single other person to win. She's the only person, anyone else, Bernie Sanders, Michelle Obama, whoever, like it doesn't even matter, Andrew Cuomo, whoever that person is, would have started off with not 48% of people that never vote for you no matter what, but 20% or 25% or 30%, whatever the number is. And so everyone knew that. And they, and they were doing things like getting her questions to in the debates that like Bernie didn't have the questions and scheduling the debate on the Super Bowl. And it looked like the system was rigged for Hillary. Um, and I don't blame Hillary. I think she was, you know, they were going out and doing the things to win. But the rest of us, I remember talking to people, you know, Democratic voters who are like very, very serious folks who like were willing to, well, I know she's not, I go, but what else, she's earned it, and da, 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 no, but, but what about the folks that are never gonna vote for her? Well, what are they gonna do, vote for Trump? Yes, they did, they voted for Trump. So do you worry that Biden has the same problem today around his age? I just had this fight. And it leaves us in the exact same place. I just had this fight with a client's folks the other day who said Biden is just like Hillary. And it's like, guys, he's not. He's not, he's, he's sure like he it would be great if he were 10 years younger. He's not Hillary people. There is not that passionate disliking irrational. I liked Hillary. It was irrational. It's like, but it doesn't matter if people think that they're not going to vote for the person. And I don't think that exists with Joe Biden. I think people wish he was a little bit younger. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I we'll, we'll see, but what I can definitely, and then the person I was arguing with, who's, who's a Republican said, well, Kamala, that Kamala equates to Hillary. It's like, she doesn't. Why would she equate to Hillary? Because the argument in the post and among that set, I think, is that she's just as unpopular as Hillary. And if folks think that he's too old and she's gonna be the nominee, that kind of irrational craziness will exist. And I just don't see it. I mean, I'm sure they don't love her. Republicans don't love her independence, whatever. But, um, but no surprise there. And it's not the same. The feeling for Hillary was something unique, totally sexist, totally irrational, whatever it was, but it was fervent and insane. And I don't see that yet with either Joe Biden uh, or 
Uh, All right. Last question. You are a voracious reader. Um, give the listeners a couple book recommendations. I just read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, give me another. We've, 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 oh, talked we've about already this book talked about it. I just got podcast. it. I just finished it. I loved it. I could read it over and over again. It was the I'm best re- book I read in 2022. Yeah. Uh, oh, God, 2022. Is that yeah, it's, it's a I was late. Yeah, I was yeah, late. I late to the game. So give, us, give something new. Um, I am reading the Stephen King book right now. If you like mysteries, it's Good. It's the first Stephen King book that scary. I've read. It's not scary. It's more of a mystery than a scary thing. Um, I'm going to read Mr. Texas by Lawrence Wright right now, which is about a lobbyist who tries to get someone elected governor, which I'm really excited about. There's a book about the First World War that I read over the summer called In Memoriam, which I loved. Uh, you are a good mix of fiction and nonfiction. Yep. Uh, that was so. The First World War book was um, oh, was fi- a novel. W- w- was fiction. It was okay. a novel, but I do read a ton of. Uh, I just read the Patton book, uh, Patton book, General Patton book, about um, the, the Second World War and the aftermath of the Second World War, which is nonfiction. Okay. All right. Chris Coffey, thanks for joining yeah. us. Thanks for having me. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.